0: Welcome to Follow the Data. I'm your host, Katherine Oliver. As mayor of New York City, Mike Bloomberg started working on gun safety and co founded Mayors Against Illegal Guns, a coalition that grew to 1,000 current and former mayors. When he left City Hall, he didn't back away from that fight. He created Every Town for Gun Safety alongside Moms Demand Action founder Shannon Watts by bringing together Mayors Against Illegal Guns with her army of volunteers and millions of other Americans committed to ending gun violence. Now, Everytown is the country's most powerful grassroots advocacy group for common sense gun policies and the counterweight to the gun lobby. As part of their effort to better understand and reduce gun violence in America, Everytown has a robust research arm that helps inform policymakers, advocates, and experts working on the gun violence crisis. Everytown's director of research, Sarah Bird-Sharps, recently joined our podcast. According to her team's latest study, historic precedent suggests that economic fallout from the COVID-19 pandemic could contribute to a 20 to 30 percent increase in firearm suicides in the U.S. this year. Sarah discusses how her team reports on new data, how we can be mindful of possible firearm suicides and prevent them from happening, and precautions that gun owners can take to prevent unintentional shootings during the pandemic. So, Sarah,
1: it's wonderful to have you. Tell us a little bit about your role as Director of Research for Everytown for Gun Safety, and what does your team do? Sure. We're a
2: team of about 15 researchers. That includes some public health experts, some economists, some serious data nerds. (laughs) And our work is really both to elevate and get out into the world the excellent studies of researchers all over the country who are working on gun violence prevention, but also to do our own original studies, particularly in areas where, you know, lack of understanding and lack of knowledge is really hampering our efforts to prevent gun injuries and and to prevent gun deaths.
1: Well, we're all data nerds around here and listeners to our podcast know that that's critical, it's a critical component of our work. So it really resonates with us. Um, What did you do previously? And how did that prepare you for this role?
2: So my training is in economics and social sciences. And I've been working for many years, particularly focused on poverty and inequality initially at the United Nations for many years, and then in the U.S. more recently. So just before joining Everytown, I founded a project at the Social Science Research Council located in New York City called Measure of America, and we were doing all kinds of data work and interactive mapping, etc. What was really clear to me in working with low-income communities in this country is the extent to which violence and exposure to violence really limits people's potential and can contribute to deepening poverty and begets more violence.
1: And is that what prompted you to really focus your research specifically on the gun violence? What, it was that revelation?
2: Yes, I would say in part that was a, a big motivation. I would say another piece of my interest is that the movement to end gun violence is incredibly dynamic, incredibly powerful and incredibly hopeful. And there's nothing more gratifying for a researcher than to like finish a product and put it out there and have, you know, I don't know, 300,000 moms waving it in the face of legislators and using the research. So that was another piece of my motivation.
1: What are some of the challenges of measuring and researching gun violence in America?
2: One of the biggest challenges is really lack of data on which you can base your research. So I can give an example sort of of the contrast where in this global pandemic, we know every day the number of hospitalizations, the number of positive tests, the number of deaths every day. We know sort of stock market gyrations every minute but like super basic questions about gun violence, like how many guns are owned in America? Who owns them? Where? We have no idea. How many firearm suicides are there a year in America? We don't know that until like a couple of years later. So we are missing so much basic information necessary to understand this problem well.
1: A lot of different issues to address. How do you go about deciding which issue to dive into?
2: The biggest guide for me on where to focus our energy is areas where lack of data or lack of understanding limits our ability to re- reduce loss of life. We also are particularly interested in areas where there's room for and a lack of creative solutions.
1: Now, every town recently released a report asserting that the economic and social trends caused by COVID could exacerbate the risk of firearm suicide. And that was based on a historic precedent. The U.S. risks a 20 to 30 percent increase in firearm suicides. How how did your team calculate this?
2: So to step back a little bit, you know, gun suicide was already a public health crisis in the U.S. well before coronavirus appeared on the scene. And, you know, many people might not realize, but there's about 23 minutes between gun suicide deaths in this country on average. And so when we started seeing the huge spike in gun sales starting in March and also coupled with this dramatic unemployment rise, I became incredibly concerned. Why? Because there are a lot of studies that look at the Great Depression back in the 30s, more recently the Great Recession that ended in 2010, and the sort of devastating impact these, you know, personal financial distress and these economic downturns had on suicides in those two historic periods. So that Coupled with the fact that access to a gun in a home triples the risk of death by suicide, and you combine the two of them. Here we were sheltering in our homes, right? And you combine the two of them, and the risk is is tremendous and grave, and uh, we wanted to make sure that we put that information out there.
1: We shut down around March 13th. When did you really start looking at the data and and what did you find?
2: Exactly. So we started looking at it in March and we used sort of the rate of working age Americans times the unemployment rates that were coming into the Department of Labor, and then the research from history that shows the relative risk of suicide within five years related to unemployment. So in an average year in the US without a pandemic, there are nearly 23,000 gun suicides. That's already very high. But based on the, the research, we could see 5,000 to 7,000 more suicides just in 2020 alone on top of what one expects regularly in a year. And that's just tragically for 2020. And, you know, it's not like we're going to flip a switch, pandemic over, boom, economy comes back again. So we expect that there'll actually be more risk moving forward into 2021 and 2022. It's not a cheerful piece. But I think the thing that's more hopeful is that it's not inevitable. These suicides are not inevitable. By sounding the alarm on this, our hope is that we will take the steps that we need as a country
1: and as individuals to avert this crisis. So what are some of the ways that we can be mindful of possible firearm suicides during a pandemic and also preventing them from happening? Is there any advice or resources that we can share with our listeners?
2: There's a lot of things. Firearm suicide is largely preventable and one of the most important things is to put time between somebody who's in crisis and access to a firearm. And putting that time in between can be done in many different ways, one of which which is storing firearms securely separate from the ammunition in a locked safe. The second thing is a series of new policies that are increasingly being adopted across the country that help families and law enforcement who think somebody is in crisis to go to law enforcement and say, we would like consideration to temporarily remove those firearms from that person until they finish the crisis. And then the only Mm -hmm. thing I would add in is economic support. So what a lot of these studies show is that if we consciously support families with unemployment insurance, with subsidies to reduce the possibility that they'll be evicted or foreclosed on their house and other types of economic supports, can also make a huge difference.
1: We've heard about quite a bit, um, the spike in domestic violence uh, during COVID-19. Um, how does this relate to the increase in, in gun sales?
2: Yeah. So. Starting in mid-March, as you mentioned, there's a kind of a peer researcher of ours in this world whose name is Igor Volsky, and he was tracking increases in DV-related calls to hotlines and to police start- starting in early March, and what he found was really tremendously concerning so claims from 176 cities or counties in nearly every state that the hotline calls and calls to police were increasing like by up to 70% and 50% across the country and actually what's interesting is that this wasn't just in the US like all over the world organizations were seeing these increases so much so that the UN actually took this on and it's not hard to understand why, right? Lockdowns and sheltering in place was trapping women and children in homes with sometimes tragically with abusive partners. Then you add to that the financial stress of a pandemic, you know, health worries, etc. And then you add to that millions of new guns. And it's really tremendously concerning.
1: Can you identify some of the high-risk areas? I mean, pretty
2: much all across the country. So in L.A. County, they had a 70% increase in hotline calls. In the state of Connecticut, overall, they had a 52% increase statewide in calls to the hotline. In Atlanta, Georgia, police saw a 42% increase in emergency calls related to domestic violence. So it wasn't just small places here and there. It was pretty universal across the country and, in fact, across Mm -hmm. the world.
1: One of the areas that every town focuses on is making sure that families who own guns are keeping firearms stored securely and away from children. And now, during COVID, families are home, children are home more than ever before. What has some of the data shown us about unintentional shootings? And can you share some of the precautions that gun owners can take to prevent unintentional shootings? There
2: absolutely are precautions that gun owners can take. Separate the ammunition from the firearm to store them separately, you know, unloaded and separately in a locked place. What we call secure storage is absolutely critical for avoiding kids getting their hand on a gun, especially at a time when so many kids, (laughs) restless kids are home from school, right? In a very unusual Mm -hmm. and pretty stressful time. That's the good news. The less good news is that my research team tracks incidents where a kid got their hands on a gun, including we find kids as little as three and four-year-old and unintentionally shot someone else or themselves. And it's pretty heartbreaking to see that since 2015, there's been an average of one of these unintentional incidents every day. Per, per day. So when you look at what was already going on, and then you think about how we're in this pandemic, and many, many more kids are at home, the importance of storing firearms securely, of asking families if your kid is like going off for a play date or spending time with a cousin or whatever, always asking how they are storing their guns.
1: These numbers are astounding. And we've seen a lot of headlines also about Fire on sales being up this year significantly over the same period last year. In, in a recent uh, Chicago Tribune article, they interviewed a man who owns a gun shop in Elgin, and he said that sales have increased from an average of 10 a day last year to as many as 200 a day this year. Is, is this something that you and your team are looking at, and, and what are the implications do you see for public health overall? We have been closely
2: tracking this starting in March. The FBI releases data on background checks once a month. And so we use this data to calculate gun sales, and we've seen some of the highest weak spikes in gun sales in the March to June period of any time since this whole FBI system started in 1998, the highest. So between March and June of 2020, there were an estimated 8.2 million guns sold. That is 8.2 million guns in a four-month period, nearly double the sales over the same time last year. And there have been weeks in this March to June period where the sales were higher than any month, e- even after Sandy Hook, even after the, the shooting in, in Parkland, et cetera. So very profound implications for something that was already a crisis. And that's why we've been really trying to redouble our efforts to talk about how to prevent tragedy, how to prevent kids from getting their hands on guns, how to prevent you know suicide, et cetera.
1: Have we gotten reports you know city by city in terms of gun violence overall since the pandemic began? One of the areas where the data is weakest is
2: city data. It's nearly impossible to get real-time data on at you know city by city and what's going on. What we can tell from those police departments that do provide real-time data there are a few is that city gun violence has persisted it's quite uneven. We're definitely want to understand what's going better, but we're going to have to wait for a lag before we can really study it. Right now we can kind of get 2018 data. So that just kind of shows you how it's hard to respond to a public health crisis when you don't have data to know where things are happening. So I would say gun violence in cities has persisted. It's been very uneven. And it's something we really want to study. And we want to study why some cities have done better than other cities. What are the programs in place that can help us learn for, for the future?
1: Are you working directly with police departments in select
2: cities? So every town does have contacts with police departments. And in fact, we've got you know records into 50 police departments right now to try to understand different kinds of gun violence and what happened. And this is particularly relevant in this really difficult time, you know, after Floyd's murder, trying to understand the disproportionate impact on communities of color. And anybody who's been reading the papers has seen that the impact of COVID has been very uneven and that communities of color and particularly black Americans have taken a much harder hit in terms of COVID. And that's also true for gun homicide. And so it's, it's important to really try to understand that.
1: When you and your team are putting reports together, what audiences do you have in
2: mind? Our principal audiences are policymakers, our network of the Moms Demand Action, who who really you know use research incredibly well. We're very interested in reaching gun owners, and certainly the media and the general public.
1: And what outcomes are you hoping for? We're
2: hoping for less human suffering and more understanding about the causes of gun violence, but also the cost, the economic cost to our country. And also trying to talk more and more about the larger repercussions of living in a country with gun homicide rates that are like 25 times higher than any of our other high-income peer countries. Repercussions for kids' life chances, repercussions on parents who lose children, repercussions on whole communities who suffer the, the psychological and the economic and the physical consequences of, of this you know, crisis.
1: The numbers that you share are Incredible and pretty grim. But there have got to be some aspects of your work that make you hopeful. So, what keeps you and your team optimistic? The main way
2: we get through is just to feel that we're trying to make a difference and that there's a lot of things about this movement that makes me hopeful. The passing of laws, the activism of incredibly, you know, sophisticated and effective organizations, the polls that say that Americans really care about this issue when they vote, and that has certainly not always been true. So it's easier to feel hopeful when you're in a movement at a time when there is movement (laughs) happening. And I would just end by saying, I think one of the things that I feel very responsible for my team about is to also take care of ourselves and to make sure that we're making time for self-care and being aware that sort of reading about
1: these really difficult things all the time. I can only imagine. I mean, we're all facing that and we're far away from our teams. And so Zoom helps. It's not the same, but I think the communication piece is oh so important, even within your own team, really critical. Will your team be conducting more research around the pandemic? And what topics do you think you'll be looking at next? there's a number of things that
2: I want to look into. One thing I'm really interested is, and I mentioned a little briefly, is sort of different outcomes of both COVID and gun violence by race and ethnicity during the pandemic and what we can learn from those differences and how outcomes in different cities are really different. I think that there's a lot there that I, I want to understand better. And it, it relies on data that I think we're eventually going to be able to get, but that we don't have right now. But I mean, when you look at sort of lives lost to COVID-19, they disproportionately people of color in this country, nearly twice as many COVID deaths, the rate of black Americans than white. And in terms of firearm homicide, there's there's more than four times as many firearm homicide deaths a year of black Americans than white than white Americans. Mm-hmm rate. So similar similar mm-hmm. issue, try to have one help us understand the other.
1: So in closing, what are you hoping that our listeners take away from this conversation? That there
2: are a lot of policies that are showing incredible promise. There are candidates running for election who care and talk about these issues and educate themselves on these issues. And there are others that don't don't pay any attention to it all. And we have a chance, I think, in November to, to make a difference and to educate ourselves on who's saying what about these issues. And also that our own actions, small actions, particularly among gun owners and people who live in communities with a strong culture of guns, can take to make sure that kids are safe and that families are safe.
1: Congratulations, you're doing amazing work and thank you for all that you and your team do. Thanks for offering us this opportunity. Really appreciate it.
0: We hope you enjoyed this episode of Follow the Data. Many thanks to Sarah Bird-Sharps for joining us. One note, given the content of this episode, if you or someone you know is in crisis, please contact the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, a national network of local crisis centers that provides free and confidential emotional support To people in suicidal crisis or emotional distress 24 7. Call 1-800-273-TALK. That's 8255. Or visit suicidepreventionlifeline.org. Every town for gun safety does critical work to improve our understanding of the causes of gun violence and how we can reduce it and to organize around elections and key legislative battles in this fight. And as you have heard, Gun violence is not stopping during the COVID-19 pandemic. If you'd like to learn more about Everytown, you can follow them on Twitter and Instagram at Everytown. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to follow the Data Podcast and tell your friends to subscribe as well. This episode was created by Devin Alessio, Ivy Lee, Sarah Washington, Eric Levin, Cindy Nunclaris, and Elliot Popko. As our founder, Mike Bloomberg says, if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. So until next time, keep following the data. I'm Catherine Oliver. Thanks for listening.